I want to see more policies that are driven by community and with community throughout the process. I think that, you know, there's a long way to go on really creating participatory policies and designing participatory systems to implement those policies. And I think that, you know, in Berkeley, individuals knew how to use their voice and you know, knew how to wield that power. You are listening to In Praxis, a podcast and a practice project created to support, hear from, and uplift the stories coming out of the ecosystem of base building organizing. An ecosystem that includes frontline base building groups and the folks who help support their important work. In this season of In Praxis, our hosts, Julian Johnson and Courtney Nahn, focus on sugar sweetened beverage taxes. We have compiled interviews from advocates working on issues surrounding the reduction of sweetened sugary beverages, as well as the taxation of these products. Participants of this podcast are community members, public health practitioners, health department representatives, and concerned parents that span across the country. In each episode, you will hear about their phenomenal work, as well as their perspective on the health effects of sugary consumption and in what ways policy can be used to combat this and lead to reinvestment in our communities. Hi, everyone. Today, we are here with Sarah Soka. Sarah, would you mind telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. I am Sarah Soka, and I met Javier Morales, the director of the Praxis Project, when we worked together on the Measure D campaign in Berkeley, and that was uh, the first soda tax campaign to pass in the United States. And so, more broadly speaking, I'd love to hear how you first got involved in issues surrounding health. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting because as long as I can remember, I've been less interested in medical health and biology and much more interested in questions of history and sociology and really, mm. you know, understanding questions of fairness. Yeah. Um, and it really wasn't until the end of college that I learned about the field of public health and that public health involved all of those questions. Again, like not just from a medical or doctor's perspective, but really from a sociological perspective. So I really like the idea of the framework of uh, social determinants of health. This is how issues like racism, income, education, urban planning, policy, who has power, who has voice, get uh, contribute to how people and communities are healthy or not. And all of those social determinants are part of the field. From what I knew at the time, the people I saw working in public health went to grad school. <laughs> so that's what <laughs> I did. That's how I started. I would love to hear how that, I guess, transformed to you realizing that sugary drinks were related to health problems. Mm -hmm. Was it post your graduate school teachings? Was it in the field? Yeah, it was in the field. So right after graduate school, I was really lucky to get a fellowship and I got placed at a state health department where I worked in their nutrition, physical activity and obesity program. And so I, I got to know that sugary drinks contributed to many different diseases, many different chronic diseases there. But really, the first time I saw health problems with sugary drinks get communicated well to the public was when I was on a subway car in New York City. If you've been on a bus or subway car, mm -hmm. you see those ads that are above the seats. 
yeah. because of like PSAs. And at the time, I think this was, I want to say 2012, there were placards when New York City had an ad campaign about how much sugar is in your drink. And they were really grabbing. The placards I saw were bottles and plastic cups. You know, you usually get a soda in. And they were filled with this goop that looked like, you know, it was supposed to represent fat. And mm -hmm. that was a really graphic image. But then that campaign was also um, involved a TV ad that ran, I, I believe, all over the country where you would saw two people drinking a soda at a counter. And one person, instead of drinking the soda, actually takes sugar packets that represent how much sugar is in the soda and just like mm. crazily dumps it down his throat. So he's like, <laughs> what's, what's with this guy? But I got the message across. And then the other example of really good public communication that I saw involving, um, I think a deeper take on the problem was Youth Speaks, uh, is a youth-led organization out of San Francisco. They do a lot of spoken word performances about many issues like education justice, prison reform. And they were there was a project they were working on before the Berkeley campaign started called the Bigger Picture Project. And it mm -hmm. was these really beautiful poems written by youth about how sugary drinks and like, like all the diseases that affected them and their family were really affecting their lives and really talking about ideas of food justice and colonialism. And that was, I think, one of the most compelling pieces of communication that I saw about the issue. As you're learning and as you're seeing, you know, this issue for what it is, what made you decide to say, I'm going to invest time and energy into actually reducing the consumption of sugary drinks? Because a lot of people would say, okay, I'm seeing that there's health problems related to this, to drinking these drinks. For myself personally, I'm going to stop, but I'm not going to necessarily make the effort to educate or inform other people. So what made that decision? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's kind of started where you wouldn't expect. I'm from the Midwest, and before I moved out to California, I had been very lucky to be part of a project funded by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, where we got to work with coalitions across the country that had also gotten funding, very local coalitions, so usually like city-based, um, county-based. And it was working with them on persuasive storytelling. So really understanding, bringing their own experience and their community's experience to why they were working on different health issues. Mm -hmm. It may have involved smoking, it may have involved other types of changes at a community level. But what I learned from that experience, working with coalition, you know, in, in big and small cities and, you know, small towns was that really the power of a coalition and really valuing the, the impact that they bring and that the impact of stepping back, letting the coalition lead and whatever you can do as somebody maybe from outside, you follow them and you support. The people from the community are the most persuasive at moving moving a change forward. And it seems kind of obvious, but you know, in many cases, that's not the framework for how this type of change happens. So I love that experience so much and it was so transformative to me that when that project ended, I ended up deciding to move to California because I knew in the Bay Area, there were a lot of organizations that got funding to do similar community support work on these mm -hmm. types of projects. I moved without a job to the Bay Area. <laughs> And ended up in the East Bay and happened to find a you know housing situation in Berkeley. And I heard through just like I think a listserv that Berkeley was interested in developing a soda tax campaign. And I thought, wow, that's really cool um, that they have that much go-ahead and that much community support for this. And they were having an open community meeting on this. And so I just went to the community meeting and that's that's how I got involved. 
Wow, that's great. And the work you've been able to do now, what strategies would you say are the most effective in reducing sugary drink consumption? Is the answer education? Is it policy? Um, I'd love to hear Mm -hmm. your thoughts. Is it a combination of both? I definitely think it's both. I think the biggest, most influential thing that can do it is is Mm -hmm. if you have genuine community buy-in for the issue. You know, the thing that that was really special about the Berkeley campaign is it really did come, for multiple reasons, was raised by community members. It was raised both as a food justice issue, knowing that, you know, there are racial disparities and class disparities and um, the impacts of sugary drinks like type 2 diabetes, like amputations, and then also thinking about it from where can the tax money go. And so there were a lot of people who were interested in helping to fund a school-based program that involves cooking and gardening and learning about food justice. And then what ended up being other community-based projects led by black and brown nonprofits in Berkeley to do work related to this, but also other types of community building and like health and cohesion work. What's missing and what's important is that we would need more community-led research. And that's mm-hmm. a mixture of like qualitative research, it's storytelling, it's disseminating information, really listening to people's experiences, and also mapping potentially coming from communities. A longtime activist in many issues, uh, Francis Calpultora, led a project in Oakland called the Sugar Freedom Project. And he did this after Oakland passed its soda tax in 2016. Because he noticed that as far as the the voting districts went, the districts in Oakland that had the least uh, yes votes for the soda tax were the districts that were highest black. And so he thought, that's a problem. Yeah. (laughs) You know, certainly from an equity standpoint. So he thought, okay, well, I'm going to engage and listen to people and hear why I thought this. And, you know, like any campaign, you have to do a lot of community outreach, but you don't, you only have a limited amount of time to do that. Mm-hmm. So really, the issue was there needs to be engagement beforehand. Ideally, that policy, the sugary drink tax doesn't go forward unless it's you know organically coming from community. And I would say led by people of color, led by people who are targeted by the soda industry. One of the things that he did was both the qualitative research, but then worked with people to map where stores were putting up negative messages about the soda tax. And that was usually planted by the beverage industry. But by doing that type of mapping and talking with people about participatory way that the money from the tax could be allocated back to communities in Oakland, he helped, I think, a lot of people. I've heard stories of of people saying, I didn't know this was the way it was. And I would have, you know, I may have supported it or I would have supported it. So that's what I see needs to happen as a first step. You mentioned equity, and I'd love to just talk a little bit more about that. There's a lot of initiatives right now that are aiming to try to center health equity in either policy work and education or awareness, you name it. And so when looking at soda tax policy or just policy that looks at the taxation of sugary and sweetened beverages as a whole, how do we ensure that health equity is rooted in that policy, that it's not harming low-income communities of color? Because you hear the beverage industry, you know, constantly use that narrative that it's going to hurt low-income communities and that they're going to be the ones that are affected the most. I love this idea of reinvestment. I'm assuming that that's kind of the way or the the approach to make sure that we are ensuring health equity and these soda tax policies. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's essential. And this was a piece that many of the people that I worked with in Berkeley, we decided to write into the, um, the policy was a creation of a panel of experts people from the community who either knew about were involved in community nutrition issues or had some other background on sugar drink issues, like kind of like elected representatives, listen to constituents and represent 
on that committee where the funds should go. And it depends, you know, like state to state and municipality to municipality, like how prescriptive you can get in the policy language for that. But I think that I think that it's very important that that is there. I think it's an essential for any sugary drink policy. I also think that the equity and the the participation is essential at all stages. It's essential in the pre-work. It's essential in determining whether to go for the policy. It's essential during the campaign. You know, is this a campaign that's really owned by the community? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if the community may not have a lot of background in, this is probably a gross understatement because advocates are consistently making policies or like <laughs> working for policies. But community members should be equal at that table. It's not it just, you know, a political consultant or, you know, some funder who's deciding to go for this. It's essential that community members are at the table. For implementation, the planning for the reinvestment, planning to implement the tax and how that works with retailers and making sure that they understand the reason for the tax and how you know, how it's implemented, that it's as little a burden on individual retailers, you know, in the community as possible. Because what what this is really fighting against is it's fighting against the beverage industries, which are, you know, the big players that are making a ton of profit off of hurting people. And it's not meant to hurt communities, it's meant to help communities. And that's everybody in the community. So equity should be throughout the entire process, not only in the written policy. No, I 100% agree. I'm wondering then, as you guys were in this campaign, was there community pushback? What are people that said, I don't like this policy? Um, You know, you mentioned individual retailers. How are you able to communicate to them that this policy is not going to hurt the community, but actually help the community? I think that retailers may have been, um, it's hard to convince them when they're hearing one thing from the beverage industry that's, you know, kind of a scary, the sky is going to fall message. And then one thing from a campaign. And I guess there are there are two things here. One is just to make sure that the beverage industry, when when they know a tax is going to go forward, they you know preemptively go to retailers, they preemptively go to different influencers in the community who they think they can get on their side at the beginning. And I think the most important thing is that community members who are supporting the policy talk to retailers about this as soon as the policy is like announced, as soon as it becomes public to make sure that they understand really how the policy works, that there's very little that they're going to have to do, that there's history in other communities of this not having detrimental effects on individual retailers. And it's hard because there are other ways that retailers and distributors can make money. I mean, it's like bringing water, bringing other types of drinks and changing, helping to change demand. And I know that there are a lot of um, healthy food access programs that happen with corner stores and, and so forth. So For instance, I think the city of Philadelphia, when they passed their tax, had a healthy beverage credit that could help retail stores. There are, you know, different ways to go about that, but really thinking about that in advance and making it as less of a burden as possible and also really shaping the message. And that's true for anybody being the kind of the first one out there with the message and making sure that the message is getting out from uh, people that locals trust. You're, you're going to learn about this from your neighbor, you know, you're going to learn about yeah. this from like local leaders that you respect. And so it's very important that those voices get out there early on. And in the campaign, what were some of the main messages or counter messages you guys used to, you know, refute the beverage industry claims? What are common slogans or, nah, for lack of a better word, talking points trying to communicate what the policy is? But what are key messages that you guys had ready to employ when you had to refute the narrative that the beverage industry is very 
very good at making in terms mm-hmm. of trying to convince people it's going to harm them. What we wanted to make sure people understood was that, you know, this is an urgent health crisis. If trends didn't change, it was projected that one in three young people in the country would get diabetes in their lifetimes. And then if you were Black or Latinx, the chances were even worse. It was one in two. That has to do with social determinants of health and like food access and a lot of other issues. And so that's clearly unfair. So that was that was one of the first ways we talked about this. We talked about how stats and and just examples of how the beverage industry targets young people, but especially disproportionately targets black and and Latinx children, you know, and teens. And so they have a they have a direct role, you know, very similar to how the tobacco companies worked in causing these health disparities and then doing it for profit. And then we would say that our community is taking a stand on this. Berkeley is taking a stand. And soda tax is one way we can start to make a change. You know, it's not the only way, it's it's one first step. And so we also would talk about speaking to the work that people like Javier and, and many other people in Berkeley were able to do, and that is really gain a big coalition and like make a big tent for this policy and you know talk to people in the community. So we had buy-in from everybody from the entire city council and the school board to everybody under election for those positions, many different nonprofits across the city, churches, church leaders, a lot of health organizations, which, you know, kind of seems like a no brainer that they would be on board. But it's really these trusted sources that are saying this policy is being done in a way that we can support. And it's being done in a way to support equity. And so um, we ended up, as you know, getting like 76% of the popular vote, which was much more than we expected and really goes to show the work that the coalition did to get that message across. So this next question is a little bit more open-ended. I think people that may be listening in might wonder, what is the end goal? What's the end game? And so the question I have is, what will it look like when the advocates win? For you, when you're thinking about an ideal world, when looking at the beverage industry and their influence, do you imagine that what we need is statewide adoption of soda taxes? Um, Do you imagine that we get rid of sugary drinks in general? What would it look like when you went against the beverage industry? Yes, I would would definitely support a statewide soda tax when there is something equivalent to a community coalition directing where the funding goes. And I think something, you know, on a state-by-state level that does that would be terrific. I think that it's important that there's a lot of local representation in those questions, too, that it's not just state-based agencies that get to make the decisions, but it's a lot of local organizations that are very close to communities, you know, community organizations. I think that in a broader sense, what it looks like when the advocates win, this is a cross issue really, is I want to see more policies that are driven by community and with community throughout the process in any type of policy that involves public health. I think that, you know, there's a long way to go on really creating participatory policies and designing participatory systems to implement those policies. And I think that, you know, in Berkeley, we're very used to being politically active and being politically efficacious. Um, And that's not to say that that doesn't, I mean, it happens in a lot of places, clearly, but individuals knew how to use their voice and, you know, knew how to wield that power. And I just feel like in many places in the country, we feel kind of beaten down and 
<laughs> not not able to do that as much. And I would like to see that change. I would like to see true participation in politics for equity in the future happen. That's that's my end game. Soda tax or not. Soda tax are, you know, a totally different issue. And I think for people that may be in, you know, either policy or the field of public health, they may be wondering what are the first steps in trying to create that equal partnership and that equal collaboration. You know, a lot of times I'm sure you're aware politicians or public health practitioners will go into communities Mm -hmm. and will superficially try to get their input, but not necessarily make ways to create not only trust, but a partnership and deliverable that is actually going to benefit that community. So what would you say are the first steps trying to bridge this? Yeah, I think the first step is it's about listening and humility. I grew up very close to the city of Milwaukee. And Milwaukee is a very segregated city with a long and current, you know, racist history. And there are a lot of people in Milwaukee now who are trying to change that. And there's a great group in Milwaukee called Block, B-L-O-C. It's Black Leaders Organizing Communities. And the woman who is the executive director, Angela Lang, began this practice where they would do these silent canvases. And what that would mean is if there was a leader, you know, somebody running for office, like for county exec or for board of alder people, they made the option that you could go with Black leaders who were Black leaders in the community and knock on doors in Black neighborhoods and say, Really, you just listen as an elected official to what do you want to see change in the community? What are you proud of in the community? And the rule was that, A, you, you couldn't speak if you were the elected <laughs> official. And B, you uh, you couldn't wear any like campaign material. You can say, vote for me on your T-shirt. And so I've heard that that's been an incredibly effective tool, both for people running for office, really trying to listen and and understand and represent. And, you know, also for people in the community, like understanding who to hold accountable for things that they want to see. Uh, And I think I think that kind of thing, you can't substitute authentic relationships, authentic trust. And that's the most important part if you're trying to do something in public health. It's a long road and it's a lot of showing up for each other and your different issues, but that's what becomes rock solid. No, I 100% agree with that. You know, Sarah, before we close out, is there anything else you'd like to add on? No, I don't think so. Thank you, Sarah. It's been great talking. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Praxis. We hope you all enjoyed it. Make sure to visit our website, www.thepraxisproject.org, where you can check out additional episodes of other guests, as well as learn more about our work.